You're like with your friends, they're sleeping over, like we're gonna stay up all night. And then remember, like if you're a little kid, you're kind of like, well, you can't stay up all night. It's impossible. We're going to go now to the big Cypress Seminole Indian Reservation in Florida. There was the biggest traffic jam that we know of in the country. Thousands of people from all across the country, all headed to the Everglades to hear the group fish perform for New Year's. 75,000 people. 75,000 people. And we couldn't really believe that they were going to play all night. It just didn't even seem possible. Like, how would that even happen? It happened because for the previous 15 years, the band Fish blazed a fearless and unlikely creative path from deepest Vermont to the Florida Everglades and one of the most legendary performances of all time. It was the year of Woodstock 99. The crowds are blowing up CO2 tanks from the tractor trailers. They got uh, troops in there with riot gear. They're forcing everybody out. Mass chaos. Mass chaos. Some 20,000 attended the first Coachella that October. The Backstreet Boys ruled MTV. Moby topped the music critics' polls and licensed every song on his new album for commercial use. Far, far away from everything, everybody, and everywhere, in Jack Motlow's cow pasture on the seminal Big Cypress Reservation in Florida, with no sponsorship at all, Fish built a city for 75,000 people, erected surrealistic art installations, and staged a three-day festival with one act and one act only on the bill, and then played a seven-hour-long set that lasted from the final minutes of the 20th century into the literal dawn of the 21st. After midnight, Fish's Big Cypress Festival, a new five-episode podcast from Osiris, is the story of how Fish staged one of the strangest concerts in the history of rock music. My name is Jesse Jarno. Join us as we explore how Fish invented their own telepathic, jam-obsessed musical language, built an independent concert industry, and how both came together in the Florida Everglades for an improvisation-filled performance that landed a 15-foot-long hot dog with headlights in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We'll hear from band members Trey Anastasio. You know, I think we felt like this party was for our friends. And John Fishman. That was the end of a chapter of Fish's life, that and of my life. Former Fish manager John Paluska and others will tell the dramatic, untold story of Fish at Big Cypress. We had to get some alligator wrangler to pull an 11-foot alligator out of the backstage area. That was interesting. <laughs> Uh, that was a big alligator. We'll refill the swamp and revisit a legendary independent festival that came to transform the music industry despite being ignored by the mainstream. Fish found someplace better and left behind a map to Big Cypress. After Midnight debuts November 14th on all podcast platforms. Visit OsirisPod.com slash After Midnight to subscribe today. If you're out there on the highways, if you're within the sound of our voice, you're near to Big Cypress, Florida.
folks. I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 81 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. Generally speaking, this is the podcast in which Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. These are usually not jam bands because we love Fish. We are Fish fans. Sometimes you realize Fish fans can get a bit myopic only focus on their favorite band and we are trying to combat that but really we welcome anybody who's looking for a way to discover new music absolutely and we are here in episode 81 sitting down with one of our close friends one of our favorite chefs uh, at one of our favorite restaurants in one of our favorite cities in america well, we're not right now, but you know we will here in a second when we get to the episode. But uh, we were, we were. It was a glorious uh, Friday afternoon in East Nashville at the Redheaded Stranger on their patio, talking with Brian Lee Weaver. Um, subject of today's episode: He's a chef, huge music fan, huge huge sports fan, really great all around guy. We got to sit down and uh, hang out with him, talk with him about his career talk with him about music that's kind of shaped him along the way and kind of followed him from kitchen to kitchen and from being a dishwasher to a line cook all the way to a chef now uh, opening up really great restaurants in Nashville. So uh, this was a really great time. It was it was a fun weekend for us to spend and this being uh, uh, our third of three uh, love letters to Nashville, we're excited for you guys to hear it. Absolutely. And the tacos that Brian Weaver is uh, shilling out at Redheaded Stranger are something else to behold. Yeah. The focus right now is kind of on breakfast tacos. A lot of the tacos uh, have some variations on some eggs, but there's also they make an incredible brisket. There's a taco that features the whip feta, which he made famous at uh, his other restaurant, The Butcher and the Bee. I know um, I think we visited uh, Redheaded Stranger three separate times in this weekend. And I know um, while this podcast is being recorded, we were uh, indulging some drinks from uh, the alcoholic slushy machine that they have there, <laughs> which was pretty awesome. And one can't forget the green chili cheeseburger that we had on both oh mornings. Uh, unbelievable stuff there. And yeah, so house-made tortillas, great breakfast tacos, great cocktail project. Um, if you're in East Nashville, if you're in Nashville, we highly recommend you go there as well as Brian's other restaurant, the butcher and B, which we went to on Saturday night. Um, kind of a modern take on Israeli cuisine that's departed quite a bit from Israeli cuisine. Um, and it's now just a lot of really great small plates. And, um, we had some fantastic chicken. We had, uh, the whipped feta. We had this really great corn dish that was just unbelievable. I used to eat at the restaurant. Weaver and I cooked at uh, roasted carrots. I mean, just amazing stuff. So there was a pork belly dish that was out of this world. Oh my god, yes, yes. Um, and then there was they take a Nashville uh, Nashville hot chicken, yes, except totally coated in um, the Israeli kind of jalapeno uh, olive oily topping called jug. Which was uh, that was unbelievable. Took a, it took a good thing and made it even better. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It was a great time. We ate a lot of good food. We talked here uh, with Brian as we had just gotten into town, and uh, we're stoked for you guys to hear it. Should we jump into it? Let's do it. It was a great conversation. He's a great dude. He's covered a lot of things about music, 
food, the NBA, all things we love on Beyond the Pond. Absolutely. Let's do it. Absolutely beautiful bluebird sky. Well, there's some clouds over there, uh, but mostly bluebird sky day in East Nashville, Tennessee at um, the Red-Headed Stranger. With, what, is your, what is your official title? Uh, I guess I'm a partner, owner, chef. You, you, you're the chef? Yeah. You're the owner, you're the partner, you're yeah. the guy. He's the guy behind the guy. Yeah. We're, we're in here, front of the guy. We're here with chef and uh, untitled... Uh, Brian Lee Weaver, one of our close friends, one of the best chefs in this country, and uh, a fantastic, really thoughtful music fan that we've been wanting to talk with for some time. How are you doing today, Brian? Doing awesome. Thanks for having me, y'all. Yeah, man. Thank You're you welcome. for joining us. Yeah. What's happening? What's what's going on here at the Red-Headed Stranger? Tell me uh, about it. It's Friday lunch today. Um, man, we've, we've been open like... I guess it's been about three months now, maybe a little more. Okay. Um, it's a it's a project I've been thinking about for probably since we met. Yeah. Um, I don't know how long has that been? Ten years now? Something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've just always had this idea in the back of my head to do kind of food I I grew up with that you really can't get outside of where I was growing up at uh, in Texas and Colorado. Um, and it's never really made sense to do it before, like, even when we were in Portland, there was a food truck called sure. the, the Pepper Box, I think uh-huh. it was called. And they did, like, New Mexico, like, green chili and, che- and green chili cheeseburgers and stuff. And I was like, ah, oh, shit, like, they stole my idea, you know? <laughs> and then uh, I moved to L.A., and um, I never really thought it made sense to open a taco shop in L.A. Sure. Um, but then a place called Homestead opened, and they were doing breakfast tacos and stuff from Texas. I was like, God damn, like, what, you know, can't, <laughs> all these places are doing what I want to do. Sure. Um, but then when I moved to Nashville, uh, nobody's doing it here, and um, everything just kind of fell into place. We had a lot of success with Butcher and Bee, and had this opportunity come up, and now we're doing the damn thing. Yeah. yeah. It's a really amazing space, man. Yeah. Um, we, we, we all just ate at Arnold's and got our faces destroyed at Arnold's. Um, we're going to be eating some tacos here as we record, but um, I've been monitoring the Instagram feed and social media over the last couple of months as you guys have come to open, and I've eaten your food many times, and I cannot wait for it. Yeah, only, you should only go to Arnold's and then go to Redheaded Stranger if you're uh, a professional podcaster's. <laughs> Don't try this at home. This would not recommend it because you get really stuffed and feel disgusting. Awesome, we disgust him. Yeah, we have we're having some margaritas that are quite fine. I know that there will be a, a taco and or green chili cheeseburger excursion in the not too distant future. In our futures. Mm. So let's talk. I want, there's a couple things we want to talk about with you today, and part of the reason we're talking is. Um, Dave and I are huge uh, food fans. We're both big travelers. Um, we're also huge, obviously, music fans. I know you are as well. And I know we had talked about this kind of idea of the intersection between food and cooking and music. 
I'm curious for you if you like could take a step back and think about kind of like when you were younger, when you got into food, when you got into cooking, but also like where music fits in with that from like a general standpoint. Yeah, um, I know it's kind of weird because like I've always looked at sort of what I wanted to do with my life is like somewhere I veered off the path of music or wanting to be a musician or a critic or whatever it was and naturally evolved into food but they were always like intertwined sort of um even from my first job like I was like saving money to buy a guitar you know it's like half the reason I wanted uh to start working is because I wanted to buy a Gibson SG and be Tony Iommi you know uh (laughs) Angus Young yeah I was I was all Black Sabbath but I was like but yeah, uh, now now probably I'd be into Angus too. Um, but yeah, like I was, I never took food seriously for like the first ten years I did it, just because I was trying to play music too. So um, it's kind of always been in the back of my head. And then like I, I, I'm just sort of obsessive about things. So like you know, once food took over, music sort of took a back seat, I guess. Um, and, you know, it's always still going to be a part of my life, but, like, it's, like, one sort of replaced the other. And, um, but it's interesting because I've always used, like, up until I really, really got serious about cooking, like, one was sort of the means to the end, means to the other, you know? Uh, what, what was, talking music first, what were some of the like, most important records for you growing up and, and as you became more and more involved in music. Yeah, well, let's see. Way back when, the first stuff I remember listening to was just like Beach Boys' greatest hits, uh, like Top Gun soundtrack. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> uh, oh, the Top Gun soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. Kenny Danger Rockets. Zone. Yeah. Dude, the theme song from that is something. I still, I still love it. Berlin, yeah. take my breath away. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a song that when they're playing world volleyball. Mm-hmm. Play uh, with the boys. Playing with the boys, yeah. I think that's Kenny Loggins as well. I think so. He had two yeah. songs on the soundtrack. Yeah. I play with the boys. <laughs> uh, dude, the, the theme song to that, though, that guitar riff, there's, like, some phenomenal modern-day, like, prog jam band soloing in there. <laughs> yeah. That, I, I, that was, like, an early point for me in terms of music I went to. So I, I feel you on that. My dad didn't know what to think when I bought that record. Yeah. But I know, I know what you mean. I wore that tape out, dude. Uh, yeah, I mean, my parents were never that into music. Uh, my mom always liked it, had it on the car. She'd be like, who's this? I'd always guess Elvis or the Beatles, you know? That's all I knew when I was a kid. Um, but anyway, I uh, I got really into hip-hop. Uh, I had a, one of my best friends had an older brother that we used to steal his tapes. Um, so I had an NWA tape when I was way too young. <laughs> um, so that was, like, my first, you know... Like, first time I heard music, I was like, oh, what's this? Like, sure. I shouldn't be listening to this, but it's kind of awesome. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, I had to take a guitar class in the sixth grade for school. Um, and I just had this shitty classical guitar that I got at the flea market for, like, $15. Okay. And it was, like, it was like the worst guitar in class. And I was, like, <laughs> I was so frustrated because, like, it wouldn't stay in tune. I always sounded like shit. It, it didn't work. And then a, a kid brought a, a Strat to the class, oh. a, Fender, a Fender Stratocaster, and I was like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. So I convinced uh, my mom to buy me one. And around that time, I uh, went to the mall with a friend, 
and they had like a discount tape bin. And uh, I knew that you could steal them out of there pretty easily, so uh, I stole a Grateful Dead Greatest Hits tape. And Skeletons from the Closet? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the one. I don't think that they would have chased after you for uh, <laughs> swiping Skeletons from the Closet. Yeah. The other was uh, Jimi Hendrix Live at Woodstock. Oh, okay. all right. Okay. And Those were like standards and case logics, and if you knew anyone that like like smoking weed and drinking underage. Those were always in a case logic. Well, yeah. my friends, skeletons in the closet is what you had if you were lame. <laughs> I mean, like, everyone... You weren't a deadhead if you owned skeletons in the closet. <laughs> it was a great entryway. Yeah. Well, I remember, like, it was my entryway to the dead, and I remember being really confused because they had all this sweet, like, skull imagery, and I thought it was going to be, like, metal. metal. Like, I thought it was going to be awesome. <laughs> and then it's, like, this, like, hippie, like, love child shit. I'm like, what? what is this? Like, I... I don't know. I, I identified way more uh, with the Hendrix. You know? Okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, that, but, wo- that Woodstock set is amazing as well. But I was on AOL at the time, too, and uh, I got into a dead chat room. Okay. Got a bunch of live tapes. <laughs> I was all about it for a little while. You know? Any any standout? <laughs> I don't remember. You don't? Uh, no. I mean, this would have been... This was, like, 95. So, like, I remember trying to get, like, all the stuff from, like, that last tour. Oh, know? interesting. That yeah. was where you started. Mm-hmm. And I kind of went backwards. I remember liking like the early '70s stuff a lot. Yeah, like if you're looking for metal, like early other ones and Dark Star. Yeah. Pretty fucking intense. Yeah. Well, I found the metal a, yeah, a different, a different sure, route. Sure, sure. But was metal after the Dead for you? Yeah, probably like it. Here in the Black Album, I remember in my in my little Disman. Black like, album, like Metallica Black Metallica, album, yeah. not Jay Z. Okay. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> but that was another record that I remember listening to. Like the first time I heard it, it was just like this is different sure. from everything else I've heard. It's just like something special about it, you know. When when did you start to play music? Um, I started. Well, I really, I started playing piano when I was really young. Um, I think I was seven. Okay. Um, my mom had always played piano, and so she wanted me to, to learn how to play. So I took lessons for, I think, four years. Okay. Played clarinet in the band in sixth grade. Fifth grade, fifth and sixth grade. <laughs> I played with a band in high school. We did a ton of Operation Ivy covers. Op Ivy. We were always missing the, uh, the trombone, the horn section. You know? Free rancid. <laughs> skankers. Yeah. Yeah. So, as you moved into like high school and you started playing more music when did you start writing your own music um I started trying to write songs like I don't know, probably 8th grade freshman year of high school okay. man they were bad uh I've never been a very good songwriter okay. <laughs> uh yeah. I faked it for a long time you know um I was always a pretty good guitar player um but I've never really once it clicked that I couldn't write songs that's when I, I quit playing music you know uh, but uh but yeah I don't know I I I took playing the guitar like pretty seriously all through high school. Um, I also got my first restaurant job when I was a freshman in high school. So I was either at my job or playing guitar. That's pretty much all I did. Um, Um, What were you doing cooking-wise? I started at a little restaurant in Louisville, Colorado uh, called Senior Tees. I washed dishes there uh, for $4.25 an hour. Plus tips. Was it Mexican? <laughs> it was like it was like New Mexican food. Yeah. Okay. Um, Did you ever get to cook there? Or oh yeah, you... yeah. I worked there off and on for like ten years. No way. Yeah. Um, yeah. They actually moved me up really quick. I just got the job at first because it was like, oh, uh, you're gonna pay me to hang out with my friends. Cool, you know. 
um, all of us that washed dishes were friends, and then um, they figured out that I was really fast at it, and they could just schedule me and not my friends. Um, so, oh, it's a corporate layoff. So I could do the work of two people. Um, <laughs> and then they moved me up to cook, so after that I was in charge of making sopapillas and prep work. Um, and then after that they moved me up to the line. Here we are, 20 some years later. <laughs> 20 years later. So what, what happened in between that? You were still making music, but you are also cooking. Were, yeah. Were you... Like, I feel like I met you at a crossroads. Yeah. Where it, like, either had to get serious or it wasn't going to get serious from a cooking standpoint. For sure. Probably cooking and music. Like, you... Sure. You kind of met me when I was, like, transitioning out of one and into the other pretty seriously. Uh, it's kind of interesting because, like, I almost didn't take the job at Irving Street, which is when we met. Yeah, in Portland. Yeah. Um, yeah, I moved to Portland when I was... I guess I was 25. Okay. Um, I was dating a girl at the time. We also had a band together. We had toured a little bit. Um, and we just, she had family in Portland and I was sick of living in Denver. So we decided to move there. And it was just a toxic relationship. Like didn't work as people, didn't work as friends, didn't work as musicians. Like it all failed anyway. And I had taken a job at this shitty place called Everest Street Bistro. It's on... 12th and Everett in the Pearl of Portland. And uh, it's probably been 10 different restaurants since you lived there. And uh, I, I was cooking there, and the owner was an asshole. Like, he threw a waffle at me <laughs> one day. Like, I threw a waffle back at him and told him to fuck off, and that was the last time I ever worked there. Um, and I was like, you know, like, I don't really like cooking that much. I really wasn't doing it that seriously. It was just a paycheck. Sure. Um, but around that time, I had found an ad on Craigslist and it was for the job at Irving Street Kitchen and uh, the chef Sarah had emailed me back and said you know I think you could be a good fit for us if you if you're willing to learn or whatever I had no idea what I was getting into like I had never cooked like anything close to that level um, but yeah uh, I got hired somehow and I didn't suck I, I did suck, actually, but uh, not enough for her to fire me for a while, and uh, just tried to keep getting better there, and um, I think that's around when we met. Sometime around there. Yeah. But I sucked a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. You were all right, though. <laughs> um, I was not made for the kitchen. But I, at, at, at that point, I was working so much, I had really had no time to play music anymore. Um, I was working two jobs a lot of times while I was at Irving Street, and just, like, just decided to start to take food seriously as a career path. Um, and it obviously has worked out okay, but that was really when I started to think like I could do more than just like earn a paycheck. You know? Sure. So one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, do you remember like when, when we were at Irving Street, do you remember any time that things just like changed for you, like a dish or like a period in time or like specific services where you were like this is what I'm going to do yeah there were I mean there were many times there were like times that stick out of my mind like being like this is what I want to do or that just realizing like like I said when I when I signed up for the job I didn't know what I was getting into sure I didn't know the pedigree that Sarah had 
Um, I didn't know the pedigree that the restaurant owners had or where they came from, like nothing. Um, So I remember about two weeks in, I was like, I mean, I was always kind of fucking around a little bit, like joking. I try to keep things light. And I remember one, like about two weeks in, I was doing something at the end of the night when I should have been like working hard trying to clean up and Sarah just staring at me, just like shaking her head. And she had like taken a mallet into the, she was like holding this mallet because she was like working on some Metro show. And she was just like, she's like, I'm going to go in the walk-in and hit this shelf, but I'm going to pretend it's your head. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I thought she was joking, but she like, I mean, you know her, so like, that's just how she was, you know? And like, I didn't, I had no idea like how sort of like militaristic it was and like that, like how seriously she was taking it. That was like the first time I was like, oh shit, like maybe I shouldn't be fucking around like this, you know? Uh, I remember, uh, you just remind me, I remember two weeks in when I was there, I wasn't, I was working with, uh, remember Danielle Rinaldi? Yeah. I, I hope she's, she's doing well as a cook now. Yeah. We had a lot of, we, we butted heads a lot when we were cooking. Because uh, I had work ethic, but I also didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I remember we were not ready for Saturday dinner service. And um, Sarah sicked Brian on me to, to handle it. And at the end of service, he didn't say anything. I was putting stuff away, and he came in with, like, a five-gallon bucket of crawfish and just dumped it on the prep table in the back and said, you got to pick these before you go home. And I was there until about 1.30 in the morning doing it. <laughs> it's like a very serious lesson, and don't ever be unprepared for service. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... For whatever reason, she took a liking to me pretty quickly. And so th- there was just constant, like, constant just ribbing on me. Like, take pride in what you do. Like, clean your shit right. Like, just do your job right. It was, like, very, like, Belichickian at some point. It was just, like, just do your job, do your job. Don't care about anything else. Like, do what I'm telling you to do and keep doing it. And, like, to a fault, you know. I mean, like, I probably would have stayed there a lot longer had, like, she taking me a little more seriously you know but um but yeah there were many points like that and there was lots of little things there like i mean i remember that me and you like staying late one day to like make a terrine you know sure, sure, and, like sure. like just learning how to do that properly yeah and like i don't know i spent so much time i mean that place was like my culinary school like i spent so much time i mean i probably shouldn't say this now now I guess it's statue of limitations are up, but like <laughs> I worked off the clock there for like three hours a day, every single day. Like I would just show up and be like, give me something to do. You know, one day I would break down chickens or one day I would whatever, make pickles. Like I would just do something and like, yeah, there were always projects happening in the back. Yeah. She was always willing to teach as long as you had your shit together. And as long as like, I remember um, one time, well, I remember the first time I learned how to actually like, cure a salmon. Like that was like the most mind bending thing I've ever done cooking wise. And she stayed after work and taught me how to do it over the course of, you know, an evening or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there was a lot of there were a lot of moments like that there where like it was just like learning how to do my job, but also learning like how to be a professional. You know, and that that's really what I took away from that place. Because like I said, I was working second jobs the whole time I worked there. Sure. None of them were. None of them gave me anything like what that place did. Yeah. And it set me up for success down the road for sure. What um what were you listening to at that point? Oh man, what were we listening to then? Um, I mean, I've always been into like the kind of uh, kind of Brian Jonestown massacre, like okay. psychedelic rock. I was into a lot of that, like uh, Eels. 
was listening to a lot then. Um, I think that's when I started to get more into like the like Flying Lotus, like yeah, some, yeah. Of, some of the electronic stuff. Uh, Burial, I was really into Burial at the time. Like Untrue, I think was is still probably one of my favorite albums of all time. And I don't I was know. the time Kendrick came out. Yeah, totally. Or, was that, that was just this like a he put EP? out like three EPs over yeah. the course of fifteen months. And yeah, they were all just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I was still like. I think I was, that was when I, I wasn't really playing guitar at that point anymore. I was trying to make a lot of like sample based music, you know, so like any of that like LA beat stuff I was, I was trying to, to get in like Gaslamp Killer and like Ganja Soupy and all that kind of weird. You like Ganja Soupy? Yeah. Dude, his record from 2010 was so killer. So good, dude. Yeah, man. So good. Um, pretty much like, let's like take drugs and, and like make weird music, you know, I was, I've, I've never not been into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember you passed me, uh, I think it was right when it came out, uh, Until the Quiet Comes. Yeah. And that's that still, album. that's one of my favorite records of the whole decade. I love that. Yeah, just that whole thing that he's kind of spawned with like, I mean, I think he was a big part of it, but like him and Thundercat and yeah. all that stuff, it's like. Uh, Thundercat's the bass player, right? Yeah, yeah. Like Kamazi Washington, like yeah, right. they all seem kind of interconnected. Like Kendrick, too. Oh. Like he's obviously on another level, but I don't know. There was there was a lot of cool shit happening in LA. I think I don't know if that's part of what drew me to move there or what. Yeah, yeah. I was definitely interested in, in what was happening there. So you went from Portland at Irving Street to Spurbuck. Yeah, that was actually like a weird <laughs> kind of coincidence of. Like how we, how I met and how I ended up there. Like, I was sick of Portland. I was really sick of the rain. I was about we three years. We were about years. to start a, re- a website. Though. Yeah. This town sucks. This town sucks. To, yeah. I know. We talked about it a lot. We could probably turn it into a podcast. Probably. <laughs> uh, I had such a love hate relationship with that town. I still do. Yeah. There's a lot of people that that town fits perfectly. Have you ever been? Portland? Yeah. In 2011. Spent a week there. So weird. We were the there. weather was very nice the one week we were there. Yeah. yeah. That was like usually a good week. I just kept thinking like nobody works here. <laughs> True. Like at 2.30 on a Tuesday afternoon, the Shoots Brew Pub was like packed to the gills. <laughs> yeah. Thinking this is where old young people go to retire. Yeah. No one's working. How can I practice law here? Yeah. You can work in a coffee shop. That's uh, There's no. a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of our experience with it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we served a lot of people that were not working. Yeah. How'd they afford the food? I don't know. I still don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There has to be some sort of outside influence. Yeah. I mean, the, some outside investor. I mean, they had like Nike and there's a lot of design firms and weird like stuff where you ask somebody what they do and they're like, oh, I work in tech or what. You know what I mean? Like just nobody actually has a, nobody works with their hands or anything. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know? Uh, but yeah, uh, that town did suck. Yeah. Uh, and my wife actually really liked it. So, uh, well, we weren't married at the time, but my current wife really liked Portland. Didn't want to leave. Um, but I had a good opportunity. Uh, and the chef that I was moving to work for had actually worked with Sarah in New York way back when, which was kind of a cool coincidence. Um, but a guy named Nathan, who I had worked with at Irving Street and became pretty good friends with, had moved to LA and uh, invited me down. Um, I opened as a sous chef there. We were four blocks from the beach. It's pretty, 
nice. Uh, going from the rain to sunny Southern California was sure. quite a nice change. Um, and yeah, I, I worked as a sous chef for two years and then the chef left and I took over and had to learn how to be a, a chef, which I was not ready for hmm. at all, but what I, was, I figured it out. <laughs> like when you moved into, because well, when you moved into the sous chef role and then kind of learned about the behind the scenes sort of stuff running a restaurant from a financial standpoint, from a mechanic standpoint, hiring, all that sort of stuff. What were kind of the biggest learning curves for you? Um, just learning how to manage people. Not necessarily manage people, but how to... I have to cook. I have to be a therapist a lot of times, you know? Like, you have to be a plumber. You have to wear so many different hats. Like, trying to balance all that and still just run like a normal front-facing restaurant is it's kind of crazy like I don't think there's any amount of like schooling or preparation that's going to prepare you for it until you just do it you know but that was the biggest change I think was like really learning how much you had to do it wasn't just like show up and go home you know it's like at some point even if you're not an owner you you have to take ownership of what's going on there sure 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 uh, but yeah, what did you learn about food there? Uh, a lot. J- uh, Jason Aroni was the chef that I started with there, and like, um, he was so creative with food. Like, um, I mean, Sarah really taught me how to respect ingredients and respect the craft, and like how to be a professional. But Jason taught me how to like think outside of the box and like really ha- try to surprise people with food like in a comforting way you know like when they have something it's not like this is weird it's like oh this is cool I want to know why I want to I want to keep surprising people that way and I I think I've I've done a good job of taking that for sure Um, but we were also like you know we were blocks away from the Santa Monica farmers market and just like being surrounded by like some of the most amazing produce in the world is pretty was pretty special too From when you were in LA, obviously it's a huge cultural hub. You're making really good food. What are you listening to at that time? And LA was all like, I got back into hip hop like pretty pretty hard. Okay. Um, pretty fitting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was when like like Kendrick started to blow up pretty big. So his whole scene, like I just I don't know, I just got really back into that. It's kind of what we had on at the restaurant a lot. Okay. Like. Um, you know, we, we always wanted to have, like, just be, like, a fun spot for people to hang out. We didn't, like, take ourselves too seriously, and so the music was kind of that way, too. It's like, I don't know. We've always had, like, everywhere I've worked ever since the Street Street, like, some loud, like, just noisy music. Um, but generally, like, some kind of beat-driven, like, I'm sure. Yeah, Urban Street was very much, um, there was no music in the kitchen. There was very thematic like Friday night had a playlist Saturday night had a playlist and it was almost to like get you to not pay attention to the music yeah I remember I learned to really hate the XX when I was there because I (laughs) played every Friday night yeah I Um, remember that song I still hate it yeah yeah it was almost like music to like 
blend into like the furniture. Yeah. Well, that's the XX is like as long as there's places you can buy coffee, the XX will have a job. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Ultimate coffee shop. They may not have a job, but they'll sell records. Yeah. But the first album's tight, actually. I I saw them live in 2010. In fact, I think like kind of peered off into a conversation with the XX, but the live show for the first record, pretty good. A lot of strobes. They're all wearing black. Very tight. And Jamie XX is like banging on his pads. I like Jamie XX. Yeah, I like him too. Shit he made in 2015 was unbelievable. Yeah. He's got that one song with Yoke Thug. I put on like every playlist I ever make. <laughs> <laughs> but when you left there and you went to Suburban, did, did it show you that you could almost like fuse the music you loved with cooking and space that you loved? And You know, like... I don't know, like, music and food, I think, are, like, I don't want to say they go hand in hand, because I think that's, like, kind of a cliche to say, but, like, um, the way my brain works when I would, like, write a song or something, uh, or when I think about how music is constructed, particularly hip-hop, like, is the same way that I think about food a lot of times. Like, uh, you know, like, I, I think when you're making music, when you're making dishes, like, we're, none of us are unless we're really, really exceptional, people aren't going to, like, reinvent the wheel or do anything sure. new. Like, we're basically going to be sampling stuff. Sure. We're going to take something that somebody has done before, and we're going to try to put our own spin on it, and hopefully it's going to be awesome, you know? And nine times out of ten, it's not. But one time out of ten, it's going to be special, you know? And um, that's kind of always how I've looked at food and music, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what makes really good albums, that everyone who's successful in music knows how to write songs. It's being able to write write them well, play them well, make them catchy. Yeah. It's like, there's tons of restaurants out there. Yeah. Find the ones who care. Yeah. And being able to edit. Right. Too, you know? I mean... Self-editing's important. Yeah. Yeah. How long does that typically take you to have a dish come to fruition? How many, how many edits are you doing where you're... It depends. I mean, the best ones... Nah, I don't want to say that. A lot of them just happen. Like, you know, like, you'll you'll have an idea. A lot of times I think stuff out ahead of time. I'll, I'll sketch... You know, I like to draw in my notebook or just write out stuff of what I want to do. Um, sometimes they work. Sometimes they're a disaster, you know. Um, sometimes they take five or six times to work out. You know, like one of our best-selling dishes at Butcher and Bee is this crispy rice dish that right now hasn't changed in two years. But the way that it is now is the seventh different version of the dish, you know. And all the other six were good, but not as good as this one. I mean, it started as an octopus dish, and now it's a, a vegan dish, gluten-free dish. You, know? so, um, you just have to be open to, like, uh, feedback and criticism, and, like, whether it's from yourself or other people, sure, you know? It's like anything else. Yeah. Well, do you find that there's any correlation with that, with the music that you listen to, that you want an artist that is specifically open to critique and open to taking risks that may not work. I think I'm specifically walking into like a fish conversation. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, uh, I'll say this very quietly that I used to listen to fish, uh, but no, just like, that will get broadcasted. (laughs) So it doesn't matter what they hear. The, uh, that, the, the, I mean, the, the, the improv and like the open to experimentation part of fish and jam bands in general is what drove me to listen to that to begin with, you know? It's why I like jazz, and, you know, I think that food can be the same way, and, like, you know, I, I do think that uh, 
most of the music I like is like, you know, like I think it. I feel like it gets created like spontaneously. Like uh, we were talking about Shabazz Palaces earlier. I mean, they're one of my favorite groups, and when you listen to them, it has like a very like organic sound to it. Sure. Like, I mean, it sounds sort of futuristic or what. That's kind of their shtick, but like it feels like it came together from them playing music together in a room. You know, like I don't know. I I definitely like miss that part about playing music it's just like getting together with another person and like doing it you know yeah. do you get it do you get that same sensation out of cooking yeah but uh, i mean yes is it more singular or do you like ever collaborate i love collaborating uh at this point though I, I end up being more of a like a teacher sort of role with my cooks but like we do we we do guest chef dinners all the time um and a lot of those end up with us like working on a menu together or working on dishes together. Um, I was just in Seattle. I did this like this thing called Indie Chefs Week, and they like paired us with another chef, and we had to make dishes together. And they didn't tell us what the ingredients were. And, like it was really fun. It's like chopped. Yeah, basically, you know, <laughs> um, not like on a clock or no pressure really. Right. But, like, but you know, similar they idea. They sent you home early. Um, <laughs> they didn't send me home early. They probably wanted to because I was all quiet in a corner half the time, but. Uh, no, but it was really fun. Um, you know, they're just forcing you with getting you out of your comfort zone and also, like, um, you know, using ingredients that maybe you wouldn't normally use. Sure. Yeah. It's got to be such a really cool learning experience. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's fun just being uh, around that many other people who are doing what you do and, like, realizing, like, you know, we're all in the same boat. Like, they're all dealing with the same problems that I am, you know. They're all having the same successes that I am. Cool. Um, you said at one point you did listen to fish. You said it kind of quietly. <laughs> yep. And I so got the idea that yeah, no, I'm going to say it louder. <laughs> we kind of got the idea that you weren't a fan, which is not something we're used to having on this podcast, and that's okay. I. Uh, How many times have you seen them? I, I've seen them. I think eight times. Eight times. <laughs> uh, this was uh, this was in the. Like late nineties, mid to late nineties. I think you saw them in like their mid nineties yeah. peak. I was in I was at the end of junior high and early high school. Uh, I saw them in Indiana at Deer Creek. Okay. And I saw them at Red Rocks when they I think they got kicked out of Red Rocks yeah, because sure. of those shows. Um, After ninety six they put Red Rocks less because I guess there's like a traveling caravan also the Denver, Colorado promoter Barry Fay hated the dead. I think he saw fishes like the continuation of the dead. There's also some sort of a riot in the town right. of Morrison. Yes. Yeah. It's a very, you know Morrison. It's yeah. Like a one street town that's very sleepy and very small, wealthy western town. Yeah. And uh, they didn't like veggie burritos in Morrison. I, I think that they didn't <laughs> like the drugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you had said earlier in the conversation, you know, you got skeletons in the closet, and you went back and you got some dead tapes. Was that your introduction to fish? Yeah, I think uh, that's sort of how it happened. Uh, I got some tapes from the dead. I ended up with some tapes from fish. Okay. And that was probably my first exposure to them. This was in, like, this was in seventh grade. This is when I was in Indiana. Okay. Um, which was also a weird transition, because I had moved from Colorado to Indiana, Colorado, all the kids, all we listened to was like Tupac and Biggie. And, sure. You know, we were into like mainstream hip hop. We moved there. All the kids were like wearing tie dye and into dead and the fish and like 
or like Nine Inch Nails and stuff like that. So it's kind of a, just weird. Midwesterners just wanted to move out west. Yeah. I meet a Chicagoan in Denver every single day. Yeah. None of them listen to Tupac. Though. Um, that was a big stigma. Yeah, no, I get that. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah. Uh, so anyway, I kind of had some older friends and took me to a fish show and smoked weed for the first time. Mm. It was amazing. <laughs> Do you have any recollections of like, musical moments that stood out, or was was it clear to you early on that it wasn't your thing? No, it was. I actually liked it for a while. Uh, I saw eight of them. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, some of that was just like friends are going, so I'll go too. Sure. But um, no, like I, I like just the jamming aspect of it, and like the the sort of groove part of it. You know, I mean, there was a phase where I was I got super into like techno and like dance music. Yeah, yeah. Similar, kind of like uh, why I liked it. it was very similar. Like just sort of you kind of lose yourself in sure. in the the like I don't know trance. Trance isn't the right word, but you know what I mean. Like. You just kind of lose yourself in what they're doing. Sure, sure, sure. I get you. What was your exit point? Uh, I don't. I think I don't think it was like Fish or the Dead themselves. It was like all the bands around them, and just <laughs> just being in Colorado and like, you want to listen to Mo or you want to listen to Leftover Salmon or you want to listen to like all these fucking bands sound the same. It's like I don't want to. I don't want to listen to any of them. Well, they don't <laughs> sound as good as Fish. That's for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So what? So at that point, where this is back, like you're you're in middle school, high school. What was as you were moving away from this type of music? What are you getting into? Um, that I was I got really into metal for a long time, like, okay. and I think a lot of that was just because of playing playing music. Like when I when I played guitar and stuff, I was like I can't see myself playing in a jam band. Like I just don't get into it. Like sure. Uh, the like sort of jazzy part of it never okay. jived with my fingers, you know. Um, but I got really into metal and heavy, heavier type stuff. Um, and then after I graduated, I still kept playing for pretty hard for a couple years. But then I got really into like turntables and samples and sure. really like not hip hop, but like kind of hip hop, but like kind of the weirder like Kid Koala and like Anticon, some of the weird like early 2000s hip-hop that was out there. Um, Anticon, is that like Mike Ladd? They were, yeah, they were like in the same vein. Anticon yeah. Consortium? Yeah, it was like, uh, there was, it was a whole group. Uh, it was like this dude named uh, Soul and Dos One. And, oh and, yeah, Dos uh, One. Um, why? Was it Subtle? From them. Yeah, Subtle, yeah. Yeah, Subtle's awesome. Yeah, I love Subtle. Um, so they started as this group called Anticon. They put out like a compilation album, right. and then they all like branched off. So, but so that had a record that came out in like 2005 called "For Hero for Fool." Yeah, it's a great album. Awesome record. Yeah, uh, I saw him on on that tour too. They put on a really good show. Um, but that dude Y is still making music, you know? Right. And yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I I could never figure out how to like put all that together, like. Which I wish, I wish I could go back in time maybe and, and do that, you know, like, had the guitar work and the samples and like, it was always sort of like, binary, or if I could have combined them, it could have been cool, sure. but, whatever. So, you moved to LA, you're cooking in LA, were you liking LA? Yeah, I actually loved LA. Um, 
my wife did not like LA very much. Um, but I was also, I ended up being pretty unhappy at the job I was at, so I was always sort of looking for the next step. Were you losing creativity? Were you losing opportunity? I mean, it sounds like you were you were running things, you just not. Yeah, I mean, it was a decent scenario, but it was never mine. Like, I took over somebody else's menu. I was sort of instructed to keep doing what we were doing. Um, there was some creativity there, but it was never. It never felt like my place. Sure. And I was always going to get compared to the old chef, and I never really felt like it was going to be like my place. Sure. Um, which is kind of what I was going for at the time. Or at least I didn't know what I was going for, but I knew it was, wasn't that. Sure, sure. Hmm. Um, so what, this is like 2014? 2014? Yeah, yeah, 20, this is like, I kind of knew, starting in like the spring of, uh, spring of 2015, like something needed to happen. And not really anything on my radar. I had, I had been a few different places in Stage. I had been here to Nashville. Uh, I had been to Austin, um, you know, nothing, nothing up until that point had made sense for me to like pick up and move. Um, and then uh, everything with everything about moving to Nashville was all kind of serendipitous. Uh, I, I had a there was a server at Superba who was from Charleston, and he was friends with uh, Michael Shemtop, who's now my business partner. Um, but he told me, you should call this guy. He does a lot of dinners with people. He has a restaurant. He's a cool guy. You guys should talk, whatever. I was like, okay. Um, I called him. He's like, I'm in a meeting. I'll call you back. It's typical of him. Uh, but he called me back like a week later. And uh, I, plan I was planning on going out to Charleston to do a dinner at the Butcher and Bee that they had in Charleston. Well, my sous chef at the time had bought a motorcycle, but he didn't know how to drive crashed it, broke both his arms. Um, that happens. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I couldn't I couldn't leave to go do the dinner. Um, but we kept in touch, and he kind of called me out of the blue and was like, hey, I'm, uh, I'm driving down from San Francisco. We're flying out of LAX in the morning. It was like a Friday night, too. Um, but he's like, can you squeeze us in for dinner tonight? I'm like, yeah, if you can come in at, like, 9, go for it. So he did. Um, and it was him and his wife and uh, his uncle and somebody else. But anyway, um, they just sort of were like, send me out, whatever. So I sent him out a bunch of food. We ended up talking. He had like kind of casually mentioned he was opening a place in Nashville. Didn't really think anything of it. Um, and then a couple days later, I was looking at Twitter, which is weird because uh, I'm not active on Twitter. Like, I, I barely ever check it. I just happened to open it up, and I saw a tweet from... Uh, recruiting website that said Butcher and B needs a chef for Nashville. So I texted him. I was like, I was like, you need a chef for Nashville? He's like, yeah. Why? Well, you know somebody? I'm like, well, I might be interested. Hadn't talked to my wife. Hadn't like it was just like totally out of the blue, off the cuff, whatever. Um, so then I went home. I talked to Jordan. And I was like, hey, I might have an opportunity in Nashville. What do you think? She's like, let's do it. So a couple days later, a couple phone calls later. Uh, I committed to move to Nashville. <laughs> I'd never, I hadn't been here other than the one time I, I, was, I had staged at Husk uh, when they first opened because I was thinking about working there. And that was the only time I had come to Nashville. I actually had a miserable time when I was here. 
Um, so I don't know why I thought it would be a good idea, sure. but I just thought it made sense professionally. And uh, Jordan was into it, so uh, about a month later we moved, threw our cats in the car and drove across country. <laughs> um, yeah, so we started the B. Um, they hadn't opened yet. They were. They told me to get there as soon as possible because they wanted to open October 1st. I got here September 27th and there was a concrete floor and four walls and about nothing else. Wow. So I was like, oh, I guess we're not opening October 1st. Uh, so we ended up opening in December. Um, it was a bit of a change for me because Michael does, um, he's Israeli and wanted to have like an Israeli restaurant. Um, I shouldn't say he's Israeli, but he was born in Israel. Um, but he wanted to have like basically a place like Zahav in Philadelphia. Like that's kind of the vibe he was going for. Summon up style. Yeah, yeah. I knew nothing about that. Okay. Uh, no experience with that. Basically, I bought 10 books and just read about it. Did the best I could. And uh, yeah, that was the start of Butcher and Bee. Um, we're about to finish up year four now. And um, by all accounts, we're doing well, you know? How has the restaurant evolved since you moved there and knowing nothing about Israeli cuisine? Well, I mean, at first, just on the Israeli side of things, like, uh, I just I was just kind of faking it, like hoping I was doing a good job. Uh, I did go to Israel for uh, about three weeks um, and realized I was doing a pretty good job of faking it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we went around to Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and Akko, kind of kind of around the whole country and um, ate, ate a lot, went to all the markets and it was it was really cool to see. I kind of got a better idea of like what like hospitality there meant and stuff. Um, we've always kind of done the shared plates thing and like not because it was like a like the hip thing to do but it's like how services if you go to a restaurant in Israel it's like you just sit down and they start bringing you food sure and you eat and that's kind of always how I like to eat and that's kind of how we've done things for good or bad at, at the beat um, but like food wise you know like I think I've evolved I've gotten better at at you know knowing what I'm good at and what I'm not good at and um you know, I'm starting to get to a point where I'm starting to have my sous chefs uh, create more dishes and sort of hand some of that stuff off to them because, you know, there's a lot of other things I'd like to do than just have butcher and beef. So um, if I can start to get them more involved, then I can start doing more like Red Head Stranger and stuff like that. But that is maybe a little more what I want to be doing. Yeah. You know? When you moved here, did your overall musical interest change did you find yourself I mean this city obviously is a huge hotbed for historically country music and kind of the country music machine but also now especially in the part of town that we're in uh, more in Iraq yeah did you find that that rejuvenated itself for you I mean you were probably throwing yourself completely into the restaurant yeah did you find that um I, was anything in terms of your own listening habits to change when you were here? I thought when I moved here I'd be going to shows all the time. Because, yeah. like, I mean, L.A. was so spread out. It was like, if I was going to go to a show, it was like, a, it was a commitment. You know, I, I would have to request the night off, sure. whatever. Um, so I thought here I would be going to music all the time, going to shows all the time. I have seen a lot more live music here just because I'll go to a bar and there's a band playing, you sure, know. Sure, sure. Um, which I love. And... Uh, so in that sense, I have gotten to see more live music. Uh, I think 
though hip-hop is still a huge influence on me, um, I've started to discover more just like almost everybody that works at the B is in a band or has been in a band or whatever. Um, like to the point where when we opened, I was collecting shirts from all the people who worked there from their bands and <laughs> I would just wear those during service. You know? um, but they've opened me up to a lot of, of music that I've never would have thought I'd be listening to. Um, there's a there's a, a bartender we had named Mitch that has a band called Mountains Like Wax that I really liked. They did like uh, it was almost like uh, kind of it reminded me a lot of like Kid A, Radiohead type oh, stuff. Oh shit! Um, sort of like almost electronicy sounding like rock music, you know. Um, there was a there was a server uh, named Ruby who. Uh, I can't remember the name of her group, but it's like, uh, I guess she's really popular with like younger girls and stuff, but uh, she always reminded me kind of like a Bjork or something like that. Okay. So like, just really like, there's been like a real eclectic mix of people, you know, there's this uh, girl named Rachel Kate who does like this kind of like swamp rocky, like singer songwriter stuff. Um, it's just fun to see what they all do. And I mean, we're in East Nashville, which is very sort of like the... I don't know, like... Williamsburg. Yeah, it's like the Nashville. hip, like, <laughs> kind of weirder part of town, you sure. know? It's, like, not as touristy as the rest of Nashville, and um, I think the people who live here and work here, like, reflect that a little bit, and it's part of why we opened Stranger on the set, Redhead Stranger on the set of town. Just for our, our listeners, you can't hear it, but right here on the porch of Redhead Stranger, there's a PA that's been playing music, and it's already done not one, but two Krongbin songs, so... They clearly have uh, the Beyond the Pond listeners' best interest at heart. Playing one, Krongbin. One, one half of Beyond the Pond. <laughs> oh, come on. No? All right. <laughs> I think I feel the same way about Krongbin as you feel about the, the last two Wilco albums. I it's, don't hate the last two Wilco albums. It's, it's there. <laughs> okay. It's there. All right. It's there. Also, there's a song by the Secret Machines earlier. Underrated 2005 band. New York band. Very good. Also, Towns Van Zandt, mm. To Live Is To Fly, which is uh, probably one of my five favorite songs that's ever been Archie Bell and the Drell is going to tighten up tighter. <laughs> Shout out Keith Hernandez. We're coming at you from Radio, from a radio Redheaded Stranger. Yes. <laughs> Towns uh, Van Zandt's from Fort Worth, which yeah. is my hometown. Fort Worth? Yeah. Um, so, let's talk about that. So, Texas is where your heart and soul is. Uh, the only baseball team you've ever really cared about is from there. Yeah. Basketball, you've had allegiance with, um, well, you and I have talked about it, and we'll talk about <laughs> basketball here in a second, but probably the best thing about basketball is it's basically like um, having like a side piece in every city. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I'm a Chicago Bulls fan, but I, I love about 25 other basketball teams. I'm like a free agent fan. As yeah. long as you're not the Utah Jazz or the Charlotte Hornets, yeah. I'm all good. My team has been the Knicks growing up, so I kind of have to follow basketball casually so as not to kill myself. <laughs> but, you know, so you grew up in Texas. Um, that food, obviously, has been a huge part of your... And I'm curious about this, because, like, the food here is... Would it be fair to say more casual than what you have been cooking for the last 10 years? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of why I wanted to do it. Sure. Um, like if I'm like looking at things truthfully, like as far as how I think about food, it's like, there's a big part of me that like 
got really into the craft of it and like the history of it and I love knowing that part of it but in the end like I'm never going to be Rene Redzepi or whatever I'm never going to be like that kind of chef okay. um, maybe I, I could be but it's not really what I'm aspiring to be um, I just want when did you realize that? recently yeah, like, when did you the last like that? three years maybe okay. you're you not going to go foraging at the Shelby Bottoms I have been foraging I, like, I love foraging okay. uh, but I probably wouldn't be committed enough to it to do it at my restaurant and, sure um, you know it, there's, a, there's a time and a place for that stuff and I really respect it um, it's just not really what I want to do is just make food that makes people happy and okay. feel good um, and and do it at a like relatively affordable price you know and um, I think we we approach that at the B um, even though a lot of people think we're overpriced but uh, Red Eye Strangers counter service and um, you know it's tacos basically like I came here with my family and we all four of us ate for like 30 bucks you wow. know so um, I think we want to be able to like fit in the neighborhood and the community here um, which I think we're doing and um, really in the end I just want to make people happy and like it took taking a step back and figuring out what made me happy and a lot of what makes me happy is just like stuff in a tortilla you know and uh and barbecue you know so like a brisket taco to me is like that's all I want to eat like most of the time you know sure. or like the green chili burger that we have here like I have to like limit myself to how many I eat a week because sure. it's just like I, I crave it you know and like to me that was the food that I want to do maybe it's maybe it's more than just here but like that's how I want to start to approach food is like stuff that I just like I can't get enough of yeah like that's what I want I don't want to just have some you know like some place that's chasing a trend or like whatever steakhouse that's opening I, I just don't care about that you know so when did the process begin for the stranger and what sort of research did you do and um well research wise maybe my whole life you know sure. uh, just growing up in Texas and then moving to Colorado, we took a lot of trips down to New Mexico um, when I was a kid, and just all of that sort of was just always in the back of my head. Um, and then leaving Colorado for Portland, like I didn't realize that I would miss that or that it was even like that part of big part of my life. Um, so that was when I first like thought about this idea of this restaurant. I just remembered you used to take me on our days off to a place up in St. John's, North Portland, called mm -hmm. Santa Cruz Panderia. Yeah. <clears throat> it had like the best burrito I've ever had in my entire life and had Mexican Coke. Yeah. And I never really drew the connection between, I just figured you knew a good Mexican place. Yeah. I was always seeking it out, you know? Yeah. Like anywhere that I went, it was like, if I could find it, that's what I would want. Um, and I, I actually like, mentioned this place to my business partner just kind of in passing. I was like, you know, if we get to a point where we're thinking about a new project, like, this is, this is what I want to do. Um, and it wasn't that long after that that I said that, that, like, we were, like, sort of scouting out places, um, locations for it. And uh, this, this place came up. It's, it's, it's really close to the B. It's, like, 1,800 square feet, which is even a little bigger than what I wanted, but um, we wanted to keep it relatively small. We wanted it to be like kind of a neighborhood, like almost diner-like spot. Um, and I just, I wanted to 
do like really comfortable food like that we were still doing everything in-house yeah. and we were using like local purveyors and all the same ingredients that I would at any nice restaurant but still serve it at like affordable prices sure so like the brisket that we get like you know we could we could probably sell by the pound like a, we're a barbecue restaurant for $15 but we're gonna make the tortillas and put them in there and you know you can have it on taco instead so. What has been, uh, so the, the Stranger's been open for three months? Yeah. It's been the biggest challenge, and what has been, like, the biggest kind of surprise joy of it? Um, the biggest challenge initially was just figuring out how to keep up with the tortillas, uh, just because... You didn't realize the demand, or...? Just, to, yeah. Once we get busy, man, they, like, they just fly, and, like, okay. you know, we sell queso, too, but we don't serve it with chips, we serve it with the tortillas, so, like... You know, every time one of the, every time one of those goes out, it's like three more tortillas. I mean, I have one to, depending on the day, one to two people, and that's all they do all day is roll out tortillas. And we could get a machine to do it, but like I don't, I don't. There's something about like people being able to come in and watch them do it that I really like. Um, may not be the most practical thing, but um, I do like it. That's probably been that was the biggest challenge initially. Now. Um, I originally opened this place with the idea of just being like a breakfast taco place, uh-huh. and um, I think we've sort of pivoted into being more of like an all-day type of thing. Uh-huh. But and there are breakfast tacos. What's that? But there are breakfast tacos. There are breakfast tacos, and there there will always be them. Right. Um, but now I think we have this beautiful patio that we didn't initially think we were going to have. Um, I just think there's an opportunity here to be almost a, a bar that has amazing tacos at yeah. night. and. It's kind of the dream. Yeah. How many times you go to a bar and you're like, I'd love to eat some food. Yeah. And they have like chips or they have mozzarella sticks. Yeah. And we're going to, I mean, we're we're on a block that's developing. I mean, I'm basically sandwiched between two of the best chefs in the city, if not the country. Um, Who's so, around here? Um, Philip Krajic has Folk down the street, which he also has another restaurant called Rolf and Daughters. Um, it's an amazing place. He does Italian food. Um, and then uh, on the other side, uh, Sean Brock's opening his new place, um, which is going to be like two restaurants in one. But, I mean, he's nationally recognized. and People are going to come here just for him, and they're going to need a place to wait and come drink. So we're right next door, you know? Uh, I think uh, the more people we get over here, the more awesome this neighborhood's going to be. Uh, yeah, I just, I really like East Nashville and, like, being a part of what's happening here. Yeah, it feels like, um, I went to Austin last year. It reminds me in, in some ways of that in terms of there's, like, true American history here and, like, true American conflict going on here. Yeah. But there's also this uh, really creative, youthful, revitalized nature to it that you get like a restaurant like this that's kind of buried deep in the heart of like American cuisine. Yeah. But also super creative, super simple, but also really thoughtful. Yeah. It's been interesting moving here. Like, uh, you know, like everybody in the restaurant community, chef community was very welcoming, like happy that I was here that we were here they're just happy to have more things that don't suck <laughs> and uh, you know everybody's just been really supportive but at the same time like there's a lot of 
you know, there's a lot happening in Nashville. There's a lot of gentrification and displacement, and, and you know, we're a part of that too. So like, sure, sure. it's it's something that I battle with internally, you know. Yeah. But you know, just being in the South is much different than you know. I've lived in Boulder, Colorado. I've lived in Portland, Oregon. I've lived in LA. Like, not really conservative uh, <laughs> meccas, you know. So now, uh, just being in the South, it's a whole different ball game, you know. Like. Uh, and and that that is good and bad, you know. You get to see different different perspectives. And, um, but just being in this neighborhood, it, like it, it's it's uh, it's something you have to deal with, like think about. You know? sure. um, and we did it with the B too. You know, we're not that far away in the same spot. And I think you know we're supportive of the community. We we help out our neighbors, and hopefully they they like what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, what do you think a restaurant like this like does from a community support standpoint? Like you, you talk about obviously like a lot of change within the community. Yeah, how I mean, do you, how do you stay true to that? We do, we do what we can, you know. Like we we bought a bouncy house for the block party down the street, cool. you know. Like any anything that comes up, uh, we try to help with, yeah. uh, and we treat our you know we give our neighbors a discount when they come in. I go to the neighborhood council meetings, you know. Like I try to be engaged with what's going on and not just like. We're here. We're going to do what we do. Sure, blah, blah, blah. Sure. So I think it's important to to try to be as inclusive as we can with everybody here. It's awesome. Well, let's wrap, wrap this up by talking quickly about basketball. So, for those who, who don't know, uh, probably on my scale of, of comparison to fish is my love for the NBA. And more, more specifically, and you, you and I have talked about doing a podcast separately of this, of just shit-talking the NBA. <laughs> yeah. Because it's the greatest shit-talking league in the, in, the, in the world, I would say. Um, it's filled with amazing athletes with great personalities, teams that seem to always either uh, excel in really intelligent and... Uh, boundary-pushing ways, or also trip over themselves, like the New York Knicks and the Chicago Bulls, in very predictable and laughable and sad ways. The New um, York Knicks, it's the fish rots from the head until Jim, <laughs> until Jim Dolan sells the team. They're not going anywhere. They can do whatever the heck they want to do, and as long as that guy is still living, they're not going to be good. Yeah, but he has a great band, right? <laughs> JD in the straight shot. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Um, so what we talked before going to record was that we were going to come with our top eight uh, teams from each conference this year and basically pick the playoffs. It's prior to the start of the NBA season here. Uh, we're going to see how wrong we were and probably – probably talk some serious shit right now. Yeah. Um, so tell me what your top four is for the East. For the East, I got Milwaukee, Philly, Miami, Brooklyn. Okay. I have Milwaukee, Philly, Boston, and Brooklyn. Close. Pretty close. Yeah. What What is your top four for the West? Lakers. Okay. Rockets. Really? I'll explain the Lakers in a minute. Okay. You're going to have to. Cause... Lakers, Rockets, Utah, Opa. Clippers. 
<laughs> Alright, I've got Clippers, Rockets, Lakers, Nuggets. Nuggets, I got five. Uh, five through eight for the East. Alright, I got Boston, Atlanta, Indy, Orlando. Dude, I almost picked uh, Atlanta for my four seed. Yeah. I, I think uh, I think they're going to go off this year. I think their defense is going to be awful, but I think they can score enough. I think they can score enough points. Yeah, I like that team. And they're going to beat Miami in the first round. That's that's my bold, all right, all right, all right. bold prediction. So I've got my bottom five. Or what's your bottom five for the West? Uh, Denver, Warriors, Blazers, Kings. All right, I have Warriors, Spurs, Jazz, Blazers. Kings, man. So we're pretty close overall. Sacramento. We just have Sacramento and the Spurs as our difference. This is our difference in the West. So and I don't have Miami in the East. I had, basically I had the Spurs, the Kings, and the Pelicans all sort of with a chance in that last spot. Yeah, I can see the Pelicans coming in ninth. I don't see how the Blazers drop out. I don't see... I, I think the Mavericks are also going to be in contention there. Yeah, but when I looked at their whole roster, man, it's garbage. Like, just Porzingis. Doncic. Doncic. What else you got? J.J. Perez. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, that's your third one? <laughs> yeah. Because I wanted to put them in the AT, and then I looked, I looked at their roster, and I was like, this is trash. All right, what is your East semis? Um... So, I will, pre- I, will, I will preface Miami with the third seed. Why I put them there? Yeah, please. Because I think they're going to tr- figure out a way to trade for Chris Paul. Yeah, I can see that happening. And not mess up the team. And I don't think that that's going to get them the third seed, though, but okay. <laughs> but, so, anyway, they're going to they're gonna make the third seed, but then they're going to lose to Atlanta. Okay. And then it's going to be Philly, Atlanta. Oh, that's good. And Milwaukee, Brooklyn. I've got Bucks, Pacers, Sixers, Celtics. Yeah, I just don't think the Celtics are going to do anything. I don't know. I shouldn't think that, but I do. Brad Stevens, I genius. I love him. I think um, I don't like anyone else on that team. You, got you don't Kemba. like Kemba? Come on. I like Kemba. Kemba who beat Brad Stevens. <laughs> I like UConn. Kemba, but I don't know. I think Kemba unleashed in the right setting. Tatum and Brown are still going to have to figure out how to play with each other. and they. I think Brown's getting traded mid-season. Losing Horford is a big deal. I don't think it's a big deal basketball-wise. I think it's a big deal chemistry-wise. Yeah, locker room. Um, I, I have Philly at the second seed, and I'll go on with where, where they're at. But I um, I thought about putting them more. I think Horford is more of a... I think Horford is going to be better in the locker room than he is going to be on the court. Yeah, for sure. All right, so what is your West semis? All right, uh, so... I got the Lakers, Clippers, Warriors, Rockets. Lakers, Clippers in the semis. Yeah. First time ever. Yeah. Um, I have basically the same Final Four, but Clippers, Rockets, Lakers, Warriors. Yeah. So, when I said I had to explain the Lakers. Please. I feel like they're going to be amazing in the regular season. Like, Brown wants Davis to get the MVP, and they're just going to roll over everybody. And they have enough... I feel like they have enough talent on the outside to just make that happen throughout the regular season. I think that they're going to win like 53 games in the regular season. Yeah. Um, be the third seed just because I think the Clippers are going to win like 
Somewhere between 58 and 63. Yeah, because Paul George is going to miss, like, a minute. I don't know how long, but he's going to miss some time. I think Clippers are going to rally at the end of the season. <laughs> um, I, but I do think that the Warriors are going to be a lot better than... I think the Warriors are going to be a lot better than anybody thinks they yeah. are. Because so, I have them in the conference finals. I do, too. So what's your final four? Clippers, Warriors, Bucks, Sixers. I didn't look at yours, but I have the exact same. Yeah. What's your finals? Clippers, Bucks. Same here. And I have the Clippers in six. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> we did Clippers? not plan that out at all. Yeah, I think this is the first Clippers year. I think I think I think uh, Kawhi is completely set on proving everyone wrong that those two finals he won with Luke's, yeah, and that he can't. Like I think he wants to show that he can again play sixty games. And win a title. So you didn't even have Toronto making the playoffs? Nope. Thought oh. about it. But yeah. I think they're going to blow it up. I have them winning. Um, I have them as the seventh seed. I think Toronto's going to blow it up. The Clippers couldn't do it Lob City. They're going to do it now, though. Oh, I think they're they didn't have now. Kawhi. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, after, like, watching, after watching Kawhi with Toronto, like, I just do not doubt him in any way. You know what I also think? The more I think about it, the more I think Blake Griffin was never the real deal. It's funny. He's always like... He was great on Brad City. He's the number two guy. He was great on Brad City. He was great on Brad City. <laughs> but, but that's I, been part of his problem. He's always been... He's always he's been He's got enough other interests that he's not going to be a true number one. You know? And that's going to really and show itself had, when he's busted on the Pistons. He's had every injury known to man. Yeah. He basically has a robot leg, I think, at this point. And I think it, there was a certain point... I think they had a chance in 2012. The year that they blew it, 2015. When Josh Smith killed him with the Rockets. Whatever See, I, in thinking back on it, because my, my whole thesis is that at a certain point, Blake just tuned Chris Paul out, which is like, fuck you, man. Just like, like Harden. you're just an asshole, <laughs> yeah. and I just like, I just want to play, like, but different than Harden, because I think Harden knew he was better than Chris Paul at the time. Yeah. And was just like, you don't need to tell me what to do. I think Blake Griffin was almost like Shaq in the sense where he was like... Didn't Griffin punt getting an altercation with like equipment manager? Yeah. He punched him in the punched face. Him. He right. broke his hand or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was during the playoffs, right? Yeah. Yeah, see, like, that is Blake Griffin's career. Yeah. He, like, got mad at the wrong person. He should have got mad on the court. He should have punched Chris Paul. Exactly. <laughs> or he should have punched, like, um, like Dwight Howard. Yeah. Or uh, Russell Westbrook in 2014. Blake, if you're out there... You're good at comedy. You're a big dude. You're funny. You're smart. You'll be a great commentator someday. Yeah. I don't know if we see you going anywhere in the Pistons, but... <laughs> I see them being like the eighth seed again and getting swept by the Bucks again. I don't even have to make it to the playoffs. No. I don't trust Andre Drummond. I bet he's a trade chip. Yeah. Brian, thank you so much for giving us some time here. This was... Awesome to talk with you about music, about cooking. Give us a song to play us out on. Uh, my favorite fish song ever. Whatever okay. you want, man. It's uh, I love that song, Fee, from, from Junta. That's a classic. Yeah. Junta. <laughs> Whatever it's called. <laughs> the Black and White album. A child of the 20th century. A dried up Goliath and a weasel named Fee. Far away in another place, a fading beauty named Lily Grace, a gospel singer, pots on her face, and a bamboo came to help her.
food is prodigy Long past the age of maturity Someday he knew it was set free Like it did for Floyd, the chimpanzee Osiris.